welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Michael Raftopoulos, co-owner of the largest Greek Kickstarter retail location. 20 months ago, he opened MOB Vanguard, a board game licensing agency with considerable success. Michael, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? I'm fine, James. Thank you very much for the introduction and, of course, the invitation. Um, it's always a pleasure. I have been watching the show uh, for a long time. So, yeah, I, I, when I heard from you that you wanted me on the show, I said, it's my time to shine. <laughs> well, the show would not be complete, obviously, without uh, MLB exactly. Vanguard and we're going to get into licensing agencies and what that exactly is in, in, a, yeah. in a few moments. But I mean, it, it is a perfect fit to have you on the show. And it's, I, I know you and I have talked, been talking for quite a number of months and uh, this day was coming. It's just a matter of when we were going to kind of lock down the date to get you on here. And uh, definitely I'm excited to have you. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start off with a Kickstarter retail location. What is that? Because by definition, Kickstarter is crowdfunding and it's it's online, right? So how does that kind of tie into a, like a retail location? <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, here in Greece, um, we had a very, very difficult time uh, to realize that it is very safe to use our credit cards uh, online to buy things, right? Yeah. Um, and so some of my... Um, let's not say competitors, let's say colleagues, actually, um, started a small group on Facebook, gathering people and getting orders from them. And then they would put forward an order on Kickstarter, contacting you or other uh, publishers that, that you know, that they were there, that they were active. And um, so back then I was just uh, a customer myself. Um, I have been buying board games since 1995, oh. and uh, you know, Kickstarter was something very new to me. Yeah, but it was fantastic because each week I could see new games, right? Mm. And um, because I really believe in um, in indies, um, I was very eager to see uh, and buy games. So. Uh, after a very, very difficult period of uh, my life uh, due to being fired from uh, a job, and my wife was fired from the same job, actually, mm. uh, we decided that it was the time to start something of our own. And we started Mibble on Board, which was uh, an online shop back then, and we just wanted to bring Kickstarters. Mm. Um, so we created a similar group. Uh, we put a lot of work, a lot of work there. Um, we had a customer support almost 24/7, and people could contact us directly on Facebook, selling, sending us messages like, "I want to buy this with these add-ons. Uh, will these threads goals be included in my pledge?" and all this stuff. And uh, you know, we started humbly, and then this thing exploded, and oh, we yeah. opened the physical store. Yeah, right now we have. Our sales are 90% Kickstarter, 10% retail. Crazy. So let me just, I want to dive into this just a little bit. So yeah. is it is it like a, cons, you're like a consolidator? So you'll take like, um, 
because uh, there's there's two things here. So one is could be consolidators, and I've seen some even on campaigns I've run where there'll be a company that will come in, they'll pledge, they'll have on their page where they're collecting, you know, people's pledges on their page and they come in as a group so they can save on shipping, significantly shape on shipping, quite frankly. And they, it's almost like a co-op, right? Where they're all, you know, it's a consolidated order. And especially for these ones that go overseas, or are you, are you doing that? Or are you buying and then reselling, uh, you know, games that are exclusively on Kickstarter, or is it kind of a combination of both? Well, if a game has a retailer pledge, I always prefer to go through as a retailer. Okay. If it doesn't have a retailer pledge, uh, yes, we are doing uh, group orders, of course. Got it. Even even if we don't make any money. Yeah. Don't forget that we want these games for ourselves as well. <laughs> I hear you. And when I think about like the retailer side of it, um, and, and how consumer, you know, consumers deciding, you know, do I do I pledge on Kickstarter or do I go through a retailer that's pledging? I gotta believe there's gotta be a benefit there for them, right? And I think it's in terms of trust and yeah. confidence, because you know that there's kind of almost a other layer of protection in there that uh, you know, that they might be you know looking for. Is that kind of the, the case that you're finding? Well, uh, most people don't trust Kickstarter as a platform. Mm. I mean, to put their cards there, because there is only one payment method, right? Yeah. And um, Greek people prefer to pay when they get the product in their hands. Um, we have a very different philosophy. What we propose is this. They prepay us mm-hmm. and we do all the extra mile for them. And if something goes wrong, we are the one knocking on the door of the publisher asking what has happened, where are the games and all this stuff. Got it. Um, and... Believe me, publishers are more eager to answer to my complaints than to a single backers one. Well, of course. Yeah, because you're coming in with an aggregated or, aggregate order, right? And that's potential sales yeah. down the road on the next campaign, too. Exactly. They're putting at risk if they're not, uh, if they're not uh, answering you. Do you find that um, it's the same people coming back over and over again? Uh, or is it always new people coming in for your Kickstarters? Like, is it the same group kind of that or on this train of, you know, adding to their collection, or how does that work? Uh, well, of course, we have a very, very uh, fanatic core of people yeah. joining almost all uh, the Kickstarter campaigns that we join as well. Um, but I, I have noticed that here in Greece, uh, there is there is some kind of evolution of gamers, and, you know, People jump on the board game train right now. Yeah. They, they want to play board games. Um, it's a new hobby for us. Um, right now, it's not an anathema to be a role player or a board gamer. Back in the 90s, it was very weird because, you, as you know, board games were just Monopoly. Yeah. Or, yeah, it, it was completely, oh, hotel, completely mass market games. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot of new faces, a lot, and a lot of women joining as well. And that's fantastic, if you ask me. Yeah. And so how did you pivot this into MOB Vanguard? So this is obviously MOB stands for Meeple on Board. Mo- yeah, exactly. And then the Vanguard part, where did that come from? So uh, I don't know if you have noticed our logo, the logo of the store uh, is a pirate with his parrot and everything. Mm. So I wanted something that it would have a connection with that. And Vanguard was two things 
for Pirates. It was the elite defending army of the Pirate Captain and also one of the um, uh, most notable, um, most famous English warships. So it, it was very easy for me to to come up with that name. Um, now to answer your question about the whole pivoting thing. Ah, so it was the, since you like stories. Well, I love I'm stories. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was two days before the COVID outbreak here in Greece. Okay. And uh, I had the the luxury of um, working alongside with um, uh, the licensing director uh, of uh, Alderac Entertainment, my friend Manolis. Okay. And I had seen what he was doing for Alderac, right? Um, with exceptional results, actually. And so I remember that I was having a very serious case of uh, food poisoning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of pain. And uh, Marilena came next to me saying, do you want something? And what I told her was, yeah, um, I'm leaving the store. She was, what? I'm leaving the store. And, uh, you know, after the first shock, she asked me, okay, now that the pain is gone, please tell me what is going on. And um, I told her, I'm going to leave for a couple of hours and I will return. Okay? And it was very weird for her, but I got in a taxi and I, I went to meet my friend Manolis uh, to have a very fast coffee because when you have a food poisoning, you don't have enough time. And I told him, I'm going to do that. And um, I just wanted you to know that I'm going to do that. And I believe that in a year from now, uh, we will be laughing around the table saying this story and uh, we will have tons of success. And he was, okay, go ahead. And at the same time, I signed, uh, at the same night, I signed my first company. A day later, my second company. Um, and a week um, into that, my third company. Uh, so the first contract came in a month. I really loved what I was doing. Mm. There was the, there was a, a, a big void in, um, in the industry. Nobody was doing what I was doing. I knew that there were other licensing agents, but they were, I mean, their terms and the way they work was completely different. Yeah. So that's how I pivoted. And to be honest, I got a lot of messages during these 20 months from uh, customers of my store asking where I have been, why you are not active in the store, you know, all these things. But truth to be told, James, the stores, the store is like 1% of my revenue right now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, retail's a hard gig, right? It's a hard gig. Um, it's a non-existent gig, if you ask me. Well, certainly evolving that way, right? It, yeah. uh, everything is going online. Um, so for, for the listeners, explain what yeah. is a licensing, a board game licensing agency. So I know, I think most people know what, you know, board game licensing is, right? Somebody makes a game and you go and you like, you know, as a publisher, I could license that game off yeah, yeah. them and go and make the game and I pay them a royalty. How does a licensing agency work? What's that all about? Uh, what we do is we sign companies like yours, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which means that we get the whole catalog of games for a couple of years. 
and then we start knocking on the doors of the publishers that we have already connections with them in countries yeah. that we have already established a foot um, you know a stronghold and we bring you back a contract that says hello your game is going to be translated and distributed in France by that company by that licensee so what we are doing in effect is we have cultivate, cultivated those relationships required for you to bring your games in many different markets out there and now the question is the you know the most common question we get is okay michael but why shouldn't i translate my game to french or german right or italian yeah. or spanish uh, the answer is that the company we are going to bring you uh to become your partner for the next two or three years is someone that has a better market penetration a better market knowledge of his country of their country sorry so that's why you need licensing and you should never do the translations yourself unless you tell me that i have a game that i'm going to put three different manuals in, in it so i will try my luck but even then a licensee can do that a lot better than you yeah i think you can even take that one step further um you know, nobody, and I always like to say this uh, when I talk with some of my colleagues and other publishers in the industry, most of who, who treat this as a hobby, right? Like they, okay. I mean, there's obviously a few exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, Jamie Stagmeyer is probably one of them, right? Where it's it's yeah, a standalone, yeah. it's a standalone company, right? That he built through blood, sweat, and tears to get to the point he's at right now where it's now self-sustaining. And I mean, that is his job, right? But the vast majority of indie publishers out there we're doing it as a side project, either as a hobby or jobby, uh, weekends, evenings, in, in addition to what they're they're normally doing. And yes, you can go and um, you know pound on doors around the world and try to go to Essen and all these different international conferences to you know try to meet people. There's a cost associated with that, right? And if the cost isn't just financial; it's time. And then you're trying to forge those relationships from scratch, right? And I, I think what I find compelling about a licensing agent like yourself is like what you're saying is there's established relationships already. The network is already there, right? So it's already yeah. plugging into a pre-established network where the communication is very, very fast, relatively speaking, compared to trying to do it yourself, right? And, and efficient. And being able to take a game and put it into a licensing agent's hands to go and pitch on your behalf not only saves you a boatload of money, but it's going to save you a boatload of time. Are you going to have to give up a, you know, a, you know, part of the revenue? Of course, you're going to have to give up part of the revenue. But I look at that kind of as, as gravy. And if I look at Kickstarter as a model, most people who are doing Kickstarter, that is the bulk of their revenue, right? Kickstarter. And then, you know, exactly. they might have dribs and drabs. And, you know, hopefully, like I know myself, if I, if I have a campaign I run, I will round up to the next, um, manufacturing uh, level, right? So if I have, you know, 750,000 backers, I'm going to make, you know, 2000 games, ship out the ones, the backers, the other thousand is now paid for from that campaign. Those games now I'm going to sell, you know, in dribs and drabs as knocking on doors here and there, but you're not going to get to the same kind of efficiency that you have if, as you're saying, a French company says, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we kind of believe in this, this game. This is something we think we're working well in our market. Let's license it off you. And they go and they produce 10,000 games or whatever. And they, you know, and then, and then they service the market, they get it to the consumer. 
you don't have to worry about any of that, right? You literally sit back after you've signed the contract, you answer the help with your yeah. work. But at that point, your work, your heavy lifting is done. So, you know, for me, it makes a lot of sense. I think the translation part, quite frankly, most people should try to translate their, their games anyways, even for Kickstarter. I know from my experience, I've, I'll have backers that are international backers and they'll say, wow, you know, yes, I can speak English. I would prefer if there was a German book, right? Of course I prefer, the, or if I'm French, I prefer there's a French book. I can live with English. So for me, it's kind of a value added I do on my campaigns, but that does not replace doing an in-market translation and so forth. And I mean, one thing I learned even from you is it goes beyond just, you know, translating the game. There could be things like, okay, we need to change the format of the box because retailers yeah. in this country prefer a different size. The retail is too high. You know, we need to rejig things here so we can get the retail down, right? So can you talk to a little bit about that and some of these things that you've experienced? Uh, well, there are countries that will come to you saying uh, there are these symbols that we cannot use in our game. So change those symbols. That's, <laughs> that's true, yeah. The, that, that's part of the localization process. Yeah. And that can be because of a couple of reasons. First of all, perhaps there is some historical event that is still triggering an effect to these people. But for example, uh, we have Maki from Sidrum Games, an excellent game. Uh, when we signed our German um, licensee, the first thing that they told us was, okay, guys, please tell us that there are no um, Third Reich symbols, right? Because yeah. th th they are illegal in Germany. You cannot add them in a game at yeah. all. Or, for example, right now we are being... Um, uh, we have licensed for Greece because we are also publishing uh, the game Grove. And... Our test groups told us, you know what, you shouldn't use lime, you should use lemon, which is just a, a different fruit, right? But for yeah. them, it's it's an issue. So yeah. there are there yeah there are a lot of things in um, the whole localization process that you may not know, and they can they can cause you a headache that you don't want, because you have already many things in your plate, right? Yeah. You don't know what you don't know, right? That's the key. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, that's yeah. actually quite astute. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. There's certain things that could be offensive in other countries that you're not even aware of, right? Based on the culture yeah. of your country, it might be, you know, not offensive, but regulations and things like that. And Third Reich is a good example of some yeah, 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 yeah. which you're not going to want to put into a country like that, right? For for example, you, I can never sell a game that has a samurai theme to Korea. Or to Netherlands mm. because of the I cannot yeah yeah I cannot sell a game for Dutch sailors to Japan for the same reasons. You see my point. So yeah, um, these are things that will come up, and if they come up early during your uh, development process, then everything is fine. But if you miss the spot, you may need to cancel your whole production for that language. I have seen it happen. Yeah. And so when somebody signs, so when you bring, so you'll, you'll take the portfolio and I mean, you're talking to, you know, dozens of, of different publishers or hundreds of publishers around the world and trying to find the right fits. What's the next step? So when, when someone says, so say as a French company that says, you know, mm -hmm. we love this game, we want to bring it to retail. 
What does that look like for the for the publisher side? Like, what, what does that step look like for them? What, what happens next? Um, well, if a company, for example, wants uh, nutty squirrels, right? Yeah. From France, yeah. Which I'm sure so, all, all of them want it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is that uh, we draft a contract after we have discussed, we have negotiated terms with them, and we have informed our partner, because don't forget that... You are our partner. I mean the licensor, not the licensee. Uh, and if our licensor agrees to the terms that we have already uh, discussed with the licensee, then we move forward. If he doesn't or she doesn't agree with that, uh, then we renegotiate. It's fine. It's not a problem. Uh, we take care of all the legal stuff so you don't have anything to worry about. And... We just upload a contract to DocuSign for both the licensor and the licensee to sign. Then what happens usually is uh, there is a deposit involved, so the licensor can send the files to the licensee to start the um, localization process. And then the files are to be returned to the licensor ready to be printed. Um, the licensor sends the files to the factory, the factory prints, and by the end of the print run, um, the licensee has to pay the rest of the money owed to the licensor so they can get their games from the factory. Mm. And here is the point. And this is my advice. <laughs> never, and I mean never, agree to anything else than um, X-Work shipping terms. The licensee should always get their stuff from the factory gates. Not at the port, not at the hub of their choice in Europe or in America. That should never be on uh, the licensor's back. There are a ton of things that can go wrong if you do oh, yeah. that. Yeah, we're living through and, them right and, now, right? You look at shipping costs right now. We just ship nutty squirrels, the game you just quoted, and of uh, the Oakwood Forest. And uh, <laughs> the, the shipping, the container costs from factory just to the ports is, I think, triple what it was when we yeah. did our math uh, for the Kickstarter campaign. So we had to eat yeah. all of that. And yeah, well, yeah. you got two choices. Either you go back to your backers and say, hey, I need more money because things have changed, which some people, quite frankly, have to do. In our case, we end up eating it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's bad. It can be a difference between making money and losing a boatload of money, right? And I have seen many publishers uh, going public saying to their backers, sorry, guys, we yeah. miscalculated. We need like $5 or $10 more. Ah, well, I really understand these people. I really feel bad about them. And yeah. I have actually, um, because as I told you, we bring games to our store. Uh, I have sent to publishers saying, if there are more, if there is a higher shipping cost, and you need money for that, please let me know. Because at the end of the day, I know that they didn't do it on purpose, right? Yeah. How how do should how could they know that they that we would be on a COVID crisis for two years? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody could have predicted it, right? Yeah. So, for me, there is a moral dilemma there. Am I going to help someone paying, you know, a little bit more money so I get some financial damage, but they survive, or I let them uh, go down? I can never let them go down. No. 
Most people are pretty good, I find. Um, and, you know, and I've seen cases where, you know, the, the publisher will say, look, here's a added little thing we're going to, we're going to give out to try to, as a thank you, right? So I'll give you a, but we do need yeah, more yeah. cash. Uh, it is an unfortunate yeah. situation. In the case, in the case where you're you're transferring files, right? And I think this might be on the minds of some people where they might say, you know, okay, so mm-hmm. as soon as I transfer those files, I lose control. What stops, you know, the manufacturer or someone employed at the manufacturer taking those files and going in and doing knockoffs of my game? And I mean, we've seen a lot of knockoffs of very of a lot of these indie games that I mean we we're talking just before we went on air, but Wingspan, for example. How yeah, yeah. you know, how do you deal with that, right? Or can you? Okay, so so yeah, you can. But let's focus for a moment. Are we talking about a situation that the factory is liable for the counterfeiting, or your partner, your licensee? Either or, I guess. For... I mean, the chance of the licensee, oh, yeah. in that case, it would be, hey, you know, we're we're going to license uh, fifteen hundred. We're going to pay for fifteen hundred. We're going to do fifteen hundred copies. They end up going and doing ten thousand. And then how do you know how much they've actually produced and, okay. and sold, right? So that's that's one element. So how do you deal with okay. that? Okay. <clears throat> you need to be extra careful which licenses you sign for your game, especially if they take care of their own production. Okay. I was, I was talking with the CEO of one of the biggest uh, publishers out there, making millions on Kickstarter. And he told me, Michael, I I was actually doing, um, uh, you know, a, a search. Uh, I was examining uh, some of the documents that I had received from a partner, right? That he had licensed a lot of games. And something felt off. It was like a spider sense that that was off for me. And so I said, okay, let's visit the factory. And then I discovered in one of the warehouses of the factory... 10,000 more copies than they had paid me for. Boy. 10,000. 10, and, and if they tried to scam this person, I mean, I would never try to scam anyone, but especially uh, some people you should never cross. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty certain that they would have no moral or moral dilemma to scam me or you. Yeah. So, you should always take care of your own production unless, how should I put it? Unless your licensee is your brother. <laughs> well, what if, like, so I, for instance, so some of the, the, the companies in, uh, in, in, in China specifically, we're, mm-hmm. we're starting to see um, manufacturers who are also like licensee, like our actual yeah. licensors, right? So actually like, I'm not going to mention names, but there's, we know who they are. And, uh, I can. It's, it's not something bad. I mean, it's Gameland, yeah. it's Sky Games. Yeah, all these we guys, right? Them. So all these manufacturers yeah, yeah, also yeah. license games, right? So in those cases where they're likely not going to let you control the manufacturing, if they're a manufacturer themselves, because they're going to want to get the cheapest possible cost in that game. How do you audit or how do you ensure you know what they've produced and not let the machine run another, you know, two hours, you know, where they're doing a run? Like there's obviously a lot of trust in the industry, but I'm just wondering, is there any kind of mechanisms to kind of audit this? Well, in uh, those contracts, there is always a clause saying that I can do an inspection of your facility whenever I feel like it. And if something is wrong, you pay both for 
my tickets and you know uh, accommodation, everything plus a mm. fine. And it's a breach of contract, so it's suable. But let's be honest: Are you going to travel to China to do that? Probably not. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, so how I handle it? Usually, when someone comes to me saying, "Michael, I want to print this game in my factory, being the licensee for China," I always ask for more money. Always. Something inside me tells me that I have no control over this, right? Mm. I'm not saying they are going to do it. For example, I have signed um, a game with Gameland right now. I have no indication that these people were going uh, are going to scam me. Yeah, but I had to ask for more money, or you know, a bigger quantity or a smaller contract. Mm. Yeah, and again, just also works for the for uh, for the uh, the listeners too. I just want to make sure there's no misunderstandings. Is Gameland and Sky Game are both very good companies, very reputable yeah, companies, yeah. right? So I just want to put that out there. Yeah. I personally use yeah. Sky Game for my manufacturing of my games. I've had uh, the Gameland uh, folks on the podcast as well as had them quote us on my game. So there's no, I'm not. We're, I just want to be clear. We're not trying to indicate that there's problems with either of these companies. Uh, They're both very very good companies. Uh, We're trying to just use them as examples yeah. of. Questions people yeah. may have when they get into this uh, this they, industry. They are not they yeah. are not bad examples actually. I work with them both. Yeah, I'm very happy with our cooperation so far. I will keep selling them games for mm-hmm. certain, um, but they are just you know they are publishers that they also own factories. So actually, it was the other way around. They are factories and that they are started publishing. their own publishing division. It's I'll fine. Be- how big are you finding the Chinese market specifically for board games? Uh, well, <laughs> funny question, because most people think that because the Chinese have, an, have the biggest population on earth, right? Yeah. Uh, th- there should be a, a, an immense amount of board gamers, but that's not true. Yeah, my perception uh, is tiny just based on what I've seen on my Kickstarter campaigns, yeah. Exactly. Well... Chinese people will never join a Kickstarter. Mm. Never. And nowadays, because they have their own crowdfunding platforms, they use those. Got it. So now, how big they are? They are evolving. Uh, I mean, two years ago, you should sign, you, you could sign like 1,000 copies for a small game at most, and um, most Chinese publishers would actually... Uh, negotiate on even uh, lower MOQs. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Right now, because they use their own crowdfunding platform with very good results, for example, we had Gyoka Games that had taken uh, Adventure Tactics and had almost the same amount of backers as the Kickstarter. So close to 2,000. So numbers are going up. And um, they are focusing a lot on um, developing their market right now. Um, I have the luxury of working alongside Simon. They have signed a lot of my games. And I see the detail in the licensing process they have. Yeah. Um, And I have seen how much they rely on crowdfunding in China. They, They want to bring it to the next level, right? So... That says something for me. That says that 
in two, three years, the MOQ for China will be 3,000 copies for an indie game. I'm not talking about Wingspan, of course, right? Because um, Wingspan can go to a Chinese licensee and say, hello, good morning, 5,000 copies, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So are you taking on new publishers? Is this like, do you have a, are you trying to keep your list small or is if there's other um, uh, publishers out there that are looking for a licensing agent, should they, should they reach out to you or kind of what's the status there? Okay, so when I started the agency, it was just me. Right now, we are three agents, three cultural consultants, three quality assurance specialists, plus a legal team. Um, I have a very hard time saying no, James. <laughs> I can say no to a potential licensee if I see a lot of red flags. But usually when an indie publisher um, knocks on my door, it's very intriguing for me to help them build their company. And truth to be told, my greatest achievements as a licensing agent is with companies that they were indie. They were indies, right? Um, so it's like, I feel like I'm a, you know, a football, a basketball coach. I prefer younger players that have a lot of potential. Yeah. So. When someone knocks on my door, um, in order for me to say no, he should have shown some um, displays that are not in accord with how we work. For example, online or you know, yeah. for example, I can I can never work with people that they are they have a bravado, yeah, or or big egos because I know this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you need humility um, for sure, yeah. And one of the things we do is we are actually consultants, right? Yeah. We will tell you our opinion on how you make or on how you can make your product better, on how you can run your Kickstarter better. Um If you want to listen to our advice, it's good. If you don't want to listen to our advice, perhaps you're not worth our time. That's Yeah. So so whenever I go, um, I get um, at least three to four publishers knocking on my door daily. I cannot sign all of them, just to answer your question, because some of them are in very early stages and they don't, they don't know what they want to do with their prototypes yet. Yeah. Um, and in some, games, in some cases, I have even taken... Um, some publishers that they are also designers and I have told them, you know what, this game is, is nice. Let me sign it with one of my publishing partners. So you stay as a designer, you launch your first game, you take the, the experience and you don't let your game die. Very important. So I'm taking three to four knocks on my door daily. Um, Yes, I accept new games. I accept new companies. Um, so how would they reach out to you? So if somebody wants is like, they feel that they're going to be a good cultural fit. Cause I yeah. think, think that's important, right? Is that you guys yeah, are kind yeah. of aligned in the values and how you approach the industry. And, and they just want to at least be reviewed or considered, or at least have the conversation. How yeah. best do they do that? How do they reach out to you? Is it through Facebook or? 
Yeah, well, on Facebook, on uh, our Facebook page as an agency, they can send us a message. Mm -hmm. uh, they can also uh, send us an email if they want to. And I'm always active on social media, so they can even send me something directly. Um, we have Twitter, and um, we have actually signed um, several people that send us on Twitter. Mm. Um, yeah, the thing is that I don't know if I can take everyone up because yeah. then that means that some of my older clients will get less attention unless I bring more people on board. And, and I, I totally intend to bring more people on board, to be honest. And you want to scale um, up, but you want to do it in a managed growth way, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, all the agents that work for me, uh, as, I, as I told you, we are three of us. Um, when we started working together, they were very impressed by the number of um, contracts that I would sign per week, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then they understood that I work like 18 hours per day. Yeah. So, so if I get more people, more partners, I need... Um, you know, I, I, I need more associates as well. And yeah. it's fine. That makes sense. I want to uh, just shout out to some of the people in the chat. I do apologize because half these are in Greek and I can't read what it says, but I'll give oh. the names anyways. So we got the Marvelous, uh, Giannis Targonstadis, sorry if I put your name, Constantinos, Constantinos Pateras, uh, Raphael Stalker, he says, um, uh, ah. uh, Michael, you are a powerhouse agent, publisher, cat lover. Where does it end? Uh, don't forget to sleep. Dimitros Pap, big heart. Uh, Mr. Thanos Gats, uh, Liberation Game Design. Uh, they're happy to see uh, an episode with you. They're saying it's been awesome working with you so far. And uh, Pagratios Lamprinos. So lots of love coming your way. You're definitely uh, well loved in the industry and well respected. Uh, I think 2022 is just going to be phenomenal. Uh, I'm glad to have met you. Uh, full disclosure. Me too. Uh, we're, we're working together now with Tin Robot Games yeah. and maybe Vanguard. And uh, people would have noticed the logo, your logo on our last campaign, Hamsters versus Hippos. So uh, it's just been awesome. Michael, I want to wish you all the best in 2022, and I can't wait to see uh, see what's next. Thank you very much. Thank you, you very much. Um, I'm, I'm very happy that I, you know, I got the opportunity to talk with you. I'm very happy about the comments. Uh, some of them are real-life friends of mine. Some of them are clients of mine. And Raphael is the best example of what we do as an agency. Because it's Raphael of BFF Games that have hidden leaders, and hidden leaders got fourteen localization partners. Nice, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and, I, and I love them, and I love them too much. I need to, I need to say that. <laughs> we got Azure Horizon Games as well. I just jumped in. They said great yeah. episode. Uh, it's been fantastic. Yeah. I work with your team, Emmanuel Kounsturtakis. Uh, love for the beard. <laughs> All the best in twenty twenty two, sir. You take care. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, 
giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.